I bet. Cool. What's up, family? It is wonderful to see. It's always uh, great to see you all in person, live, in the flesh. Um, again, we love our dear friend Jake here. I literally just gave the preacher pod a name as I walked up here. Uh, so that is that is how I'm introducing him to you as Jake. And we appreciate dear Jake for protecting us all through the pandemic. And um, again, pray for Jake this morning that I will not implode and get all active and charismatic and knock him onto the first row and endanger everyone here. It's wonderful to be here. It is wonderful to take on this position as pastoral resident. And this morning, I'm going to follow the model of our elder, Rich Lynn, who shared a little bit of his story. And I'm also going to share why I'm excited about this position as well. So I'm going to start with that first question. What excites me about this position? So I have loved ministry since I was a teenager. I was a Sunday school geek growing up, which made me kind of an enigma in my community. I love going to Sunday school and learning about the Bible. And there came a time when the leaders in my church were like, well, son, since you can answer all the questions in class, you might as well teach the class. And I was like, ha, 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 that's so funny. Y'all, y'all got jokes. And they're like, nah, fam, you up next week. Here's the book. You'll be teaching. And my church was the kind of church where once they noticed that you could do something, they would immediately put you to work. It's almost like they would see you moving your hands as you were talking and say, you know, son, I love the way you're moving your arms. You would be great at vacuuming the floors. So why don't you go to the back and vacuum the floors and serve our community that way? So they immediately put you to work. And for me, as daunting as it was to be a Sunday school teacher at the tender age of 16, once I got past the nerves after a few months, I came to really love helping my peers think through what does it mean to live a life as a Christian? We all believed and we accepted what God's word says, but we all wondered practically how do we apply these principles and live them out in our day to day lives and being able to help high school students who at the time were my peers grapple with these essential questions and being able to counsel them on their Christian journey was deeply life-giving to me. And that's when I knew that I was called to Christian ministry because that's when I knew God had given me the passion to teach and preach his word and help others on their Christian journey. And I think that has a lot to do with what has led me here to this church. And more specifically, why Jacob's Well I love this church really because of our core identities, right? The two that first drew me here to visit and then become a member were life in multi-ethnic community and seeking justice and mercy. And I love how these two, along with the rest of our identities, flow from our foremost one, which is being gospel-centered. The fact that we see life in multi-ethnic community and seeking justice as gospel-centered issues excited me about serving this church, being a part of this church, and excited me about what God is going to do in our community and through our community. I've loved the work we've done over the last year in regard to growing in these identities, and I look forward to continue to grow and help us to discern, pray, and become the multi-ethnic community that God has called us to be here in this place 
and in this state. So I'm excited to see what God continues to do through us. And I know I've given Jersey a very, very hard time. And that might not stop for a little while, just to be honest. But I am excited to get to know this state more and maybe even grow to love it. God help us all. <laughs> so that's why Jacob's well. And before we dive into our time of teaching this morning, I now want to give you a short version of my story. The story of how I came to faith and how I ended up before you here right now. Now, as I thought about this, there are a few different ways I probably can tell my story. But the way I'm going to tell it this morning is by telling it through the story of my grandmother, Willie Esther Baker, because I believe my story is very much so wrapped up in hers. My grandmother was born in Emerson, Arkansas, a small country town in the South. She was a daughter of sharecroppers, and she also was one of 12 children. I have lots of cousins. Sharecropping, for those who might not be familiar with that term, was an institution that was implemented right after slavery. And basically how it worked was my grandmother and her folks, for example, had a house that was on a piece of land owned by a white family. And on this land, they would pick cotton, as my grandmother would say, from sunup to sundown. And they, would, and they would literally make pennies on the dollar for their labor, and they were compensated with a house, which was a shack, essentially, with no electricity or no running water. So while their labor was not free, it was as it was during slavery, as during slavery, it was still highly exploited. And my grandmother often tells us of how her grandmother, who she knew, was a slave. And how thankfully she was able to give birth to children and grandchildren who did not have to grow up under enslavement as she did. So being a child of the South, my family's proximity to slavery goes back just a few generations. And what has always amazed me about my grandmother's story is that in the midst of picking cotton and missing time at school to work in the fields and in the midst of dealing with Jim Crow laws on a daily on a daily basis, Amazingly, she, along with the rest of her family and community, was found by Jesus. My grandmother tells the story of how our Lord and Savior was able to sift through the muddy waters of racism to find her and her family. And once Jesus found her, my grandmother received him with open arms. And like so many black folks in the South at the time, she received Jesus in the black church. And it was in the black church where black folks would go and hear a message about a God who created them in his image, about a God who called them according to his person, and about a God who would deliver them from the evil of racism one day in heaven and on earth, which is why he endorsed their struggle for freedom. I was also raised in the black church, the institution that facilitated the salvation of my grandmother and allowed her to dream of better things for her family, which is why she moved to Dallas, Texas. And it was in Dallas, in a small black church, that my grandmother found for her family that I was also taught about this Jesus. And this Jesus I was taught died for me so that I could be free. And freedom was stressed in our church because they knew the world might not always grant me the freedoms and rights I deserve as a human being. But in Jesus, 
I was fully free and in Christ, I could be made whole. I fell in love with the message of the Gospels because this God of the Bible cared deeply about me and the totality of my experience. He cared about the suffering that I would face as a black person, and he cared about the suffering that my community would face. This God has a divine purpose for my life that the world could not alter because my God is more powerful than the world. And as long as I am in his will, I will be able to thrive and live a life of meaning and purpose just like Jesus did. And this is how I came to Jesus, because just like my grandmother, Jesus found me in a small black church in Dallas, Texas. And once he found me, I welcomed him with open arms. And I spent my life getting to know him, walking in his path for me, which has led me right here in central New Jersey, in this place here, Jacob's Well. Couldn't be more happy to be here either. And this is the short story of how I stand before you today. Thank you so much for lending me your ears, and I look forward to hearing more of your stories. Can't wait to hear your stories of how God found you and how you embraced him. All right. And with that, we're going to turn to the time of teaching. And if you don't mind, I'm going to actually reread the scripture this morning that way, so that our memory is refreshed. That way we can just dive in and have uh, knowledge of what we'll actually be doing. So we're going to go one more time. Sister Carrie, we loved your reading. I'm not, I'm not trying to throw shade at you at all. We loved your reading. You did a wonderful job. We're going to read it one more time just, just for clarity's purpose. And then we'll dive right in. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 through 22. All right. This is what the Lord of the Lord says. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkle both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Just for a few minutes of your time this morning, church, I want to tag this text, A New Covenant in Christ. A New Covenant in Christ. One of the things that immediately jumped out to me in this text is the title the author of Hebrews assigns to Jesus. Do you see it? The author says that Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. Now, this is actually very interesting. Because there is only one other place in the New Testament that refers to Jesus as a mediator. 
Timothy does in 1 Timothy 2.5. But other than Timothy, the author of Hebrews is the only one to refer to Jesus as a mediator, which raises the obvious question, why? Why does he refer to Jesus as a mediator? Why does he give him this title? Well, mediator translated in the Greek means one who intervenes between two individuals to make or restore peace and friendship. A mediator is also one who ratifies covenants. And this makes sense to us because we have seen how Jesus intervened between, between the relationship of God and humanity to set things right with us again so that we can be in right relationship with God. And to give us more historical context on the word and title of mediator, this world, this word in the ancient world also had legal connotations. A mediator was often referred to as an arbiter in a political dispute or a peacemaker in a business conflict. So if Jesus is our mediator, then the question becomes, what dispute is he trying to get in between? What dispute is he intervening? And I think it's important that we lay out and explain this dispute, this dispute between God and us. And a simple explanation and a source of our dispute with God is sin, of course, because humanity continuously sins against God. It drives this huge wedge between us to a point to where it becomes difficult for us to be in right relationship with God. But I want to dig a little deeper this morning and really be brutally honest about what sin really is and why it drives a wedge between us and God. See, sin is not simply disobeying God and God's commands, but sin is us saying to God that we want to be king, right? And we want to be the God of our own lives. And in this kingdom of our lives, we are the rulers and God is the subject. I call the shots and every once in a while, if I feel like it, I'll check in and I'll run things by you, God, to see what you think. Sin is us treating God as a consultant of our lives rather than as the creator of our lives. Sin is us saying that it's my way or the highway. It is us rebelling against God and God's kingdom principles and embracing our own kingship or queenship rather than God's kingship. Sin is rooted in our desire to rule and make our own plans for our lives. And God looks at this situation and says, if this is how y'all going to treat me in this relationship, then this ain't going to work. And here lies the great dispute between humanity and God. But the good news is because God is rich in mercy and rich in his love for us, he does not give up on this relationship. No, but God says, I'm going to fix this relationship by sending a mediator. I'm going to fix this situation by sending one who will intervene and set things right between us and our father in heaven. Who is this mediator, Brother Jalen, that will resolve this great dispute? Who is this mediator that will show us the way, the truth and the true meaning of what it means to be alive? 
Well, this morning, the author of Hebrews is happy to report that this mediator that is going to come to set things right again is both fully human and fully God. This mediator is one who is uniquely qualified to fix the mess that humanity has made with our God in heaven. There is one who walked the earth to show us how to be in right relationship with God. And this person is Jesus. Jesus, who understood that he was not the author of his own story, nor the creator of his life, which is why he submitted himself to the one and only creator and author of his story. I'm so glad that Jesus gave us the blueprint on how to live a life, and more importantly, he made the ultimate sacrifice so that we can, just as he did, serve our Father in heaven and be in right relationship with him. The author of Hebrews says it very clearly, that Jesus, as the mediator, came to inaugurate a new covenant. And he did this through the giving of his life. To set us free from the sins under the first covenant, which was tied to the Mosaic laws. And as mediator, Jesus guarantees to all that every one of God's promises will be kept and fulfilled. The author of Hebrews brings, brings together for us both the atonement and the covenant to declare that through Christ's sacrifice, the mercy promise under the new covenant would be given. It is through Jesus and his sacrificial death and according to God's perfect will that we have this new covenant where we can receive this eternal inheritance. And this inheritance under the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus, this is very important, is different than the inheritance promised under the old one, right? And again, this is very important because under the old covenant, the promise God gave Israel was tied to the land of Canaan. Right. The inheritance was tied to a promised land. But the divine purpose in Jesus becoming the mediator of the new covenant is that those who are called by God. And when the text says those who are called by God, it simply means those who hear the message of the gospel and respond by following Jesus. Those who are called by God under this new covenant will receive the promise of eternal salvation. Different promise. The promise to enter into God's kingdom and enact his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, along with the promise of spending an eternity with God and Jesus in heaven. So Jesus redeems all of us, including those who sinned under the first covenant. Right. Because the old covenant demanded death for those who sinned against it. But Jesus's redemptive work on the cross is retrospective in its effect, and it applies to all of those, even in ancient Israel. And not only does Jesus redeem those under the old covenant, but he also redeems those who fall under the new covenant. And I'm so glad this morning that Christ as the mediator of this new covenant stands in between us and God and accomplishes the bringing together 
other two parties into an agreement based on this new covenant, a covenant centered around Jesus' death on the cross, which liberates us, establishing a means by which we might be forgiven for our sins and where God now sees us as children who have been redeemed rather than as sinners in a great dispute with him. This new covenant redeems us and it sets us free from the sins that wants to provoke us to be God rather than fulfilling our rightful roles as children of God. Now, given that Jesus had to die a sacrificial death to usher in a new covenant, it raises the crucial question of why did Jesus have to die in order for him to inaugurate a new covenant. The author uses the following verses in our text to answer this very important question, the verses after verse 15. And before we start with verse 16 and 17, I want to turn your attention to a passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. I'm going to turn that with you. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This is a very important passage for this morning. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Let's start there real quick. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. We're only going to read three verses. So the word of God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on a day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't this really cool? How the new covenant is announced in the Old Testament. Before we even get to Jesus, God is already announcing and writing this covenant into existence. And I also want to turn your attention to Mark chapter 14, verse 24. You don't have to turn. I'm just going to read it real quick. Mark 14, verse 12, this is also very important because Jesus at the Last Supper, before he is led to his death, says this. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. Do you see the conversation happening between God of the Old Testament, our father, and God manifested in the flesh in the New Testament? I think both of these moments in history are crucial for us to understand verse 16 and 17 in our text this morning. Because the author of Hebrews answered this question of why did Jesus have to die with an illustration. He says, you know, in the case of a will that someone has to die before they receive its inheritance. Right. In order for the will to be enacted, the person that wrote it 
has to pass on in order to pass it on to in order to pass on their inheritance to their descendants. And it is a case that the will cannot take effect while the one who wrote it is still alive. Verse 16 and 17 is trying to tell us plainly that just like in a will, in order for us as God's children to receive the eternal inheritance that God wants for us, he has to die first. We see how God, in essence, wrote out the will in the Old Testament by announcing it through Jeremiah. And we then see how the will continued and was reiterated by Jesus in the Gospels. When, he's, when he clearly says that in order for this covenant to come into action, I have to die. Because Jesus, who is God manifested in the flesh, is the only one who has the power and the authority to enact the will that God has written since the days of the Old Testament. And he says, in my death and eventual resurrection, I will pass on the power of the Holy Spirit to you, my followers, whose sins will be redeemed by me. And you will have the power to now become like me with my spirit. This redemption will ultimately allow all of God's children to enter into right relationship with him. But none of this happens if Jesus, God, does not die. The will cannot be enacted if the one who wrote it is still alive. And the good news this morning is that our God may have had to die, but he also got back up. And he's also still with us till this day, counseling us on how to handle this great inheritance that he passed down to us. These verses explain why Christ had to die. In order to become the priestly mediator of this new covenant, the ratification and the validation of a new covenant required sacrificial blood, which can only be obtained by death. The author of Hebrews furthers this argument that the new covenant required a sacrificial death in verse 18. He references the way the old covenant was inaugurated in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrew discusses how the old covenant in verse 18 was inaugurated by the shedding of blood through animal sacrifices. And this is interesting, right? Because this basically serves as a precedent and a type for the new covenant, which is established by Jesus's blood alone. So Jesus, again, had to die to fulfill the promise made in the Old Testament because he was the only one who can make the one and only ultimate sacrifice because of his because of his divinity and his humanity. He will become what the prophet Isaiah calls the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Thanks be to God. And the author of Hebrews is sure to point out to church that these sins of humankind used to be taken away through the practice of animal sacrifices. And this informs the rituals of the Israelites. Verse 19 through 21 discuss how Moses would declare the words and laws of God and how he would take the blood of the calves and goats sacrifice as fellowship offerings and he would sprinkle this blood on the people 
and on a temple. And I know this can seem weird to us now, but this blood powerfully was a symbol. And when the blood was sprinkled onto the people, it represented the way that God would wash away their sins. So as the blood came onto the flesh of the Israelites, imagine their sins being washed away. And I don't know about you, but if I was living back then, as weird as it might sound, I would feel good about that. Thank God that my sins are being washed away by this powerful blood, because without the washing of sins, I would be dead and living a life of sin, anger and utter resentment. And this can make a little sense to us now in our modern times, because we know we also commemorate the blood of Jesus in the sacred ritual ritual of Holy Communion. Jesus said at the Last Supper that this is my blood that will be poured out for many. And the way you remember my death on the cross is for you to practice this sacred ritual that I am going to inaugurate right now. And in this ritual, we remember by drinking to honor the blood that was shed for us. And we honor it and we do it again by eating to honor his body that was broken for us. These rituals have meaning for us as Christians because they remind us of the glorious and ultimate sacrifice that God enacts on our behalf. And as I draw to a close, verse 22, I thought the conclusion of every sermon is always the best part of every sermon because we have Gary, Beth, Gary, get out, get on out of here. <laughs> the preacher just decided about the, about the conclusion as, as the members are. I, I guarantee you that. That's what's, that, that's, that's what's really funny about it. I don't, know, I, don't know the, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that or not, but we're just excited. But as we draw to a close, with verse 22, where the author of Hebrews closes his argument quite clearly, right? He says that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And for without the shedding of blood, there can be no Forgiveness. You know, this reminds me of the words of the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've quoted him before. I love how Bonhoeffer says that there is no such thing as cheap grace. I love that. Or cheap forgiveness or cheap mercy. That these things cost because Jesus had to give up his life so that you and I could have access to a grace and a forgiveness that transforms us from a sinner to a child of God. And I want to be very clear right here, church, that as children of God, we are called just like Jesus was to forgive and bring peace to toxic and difficult situations. But in order for us to do this is going to require sacrifice is going to require us dying to ourselves. What would it look like, child of God, if you surveyed every relationship in your life, relationships that are difficult and painful and filled with disputes? What would it look like if you decided to take up the mantle of your savior and forgive those you have disputes with and forgive even those that may have caused harm to you. Now, 
This task is not an easy one. I don't pretend that it is. Forgiveness is a journey. It doesn't just happen in one fell soup or in one big step. It takes prayer. It takes discernment. It takes reflection and direction from God on how to forgive in such a way that is freeing and safe for you while at the same time freeing for the other person. It takes courage. It takes boldness. It takes faith. That God knows what he's doing. Forgiveness has the power to restore and reconcile broken relationships, which is why God calls us to do it. Just like he called his son to do it for us in our broken relationship with him. Had it not been for the forgiveness of God demonstrated through the work and ministry of Jesus Christ, you and I would not be here today. And just like Jesus church, we are peacemakers. We are called to sow peace where there is hatred. We are called to sow peace where there is division and toxicity. This is the work of the children of God. And the good news this morning is we don't have to do this alone. I'm not up here telling you to, to fulfill a certain, com a certain command and, that you, and, and, and that, that you will be more holy or more sanctified if you follow all the rules. God knows that you cannot do this on your own. And the good news is, since God knows this, this is why Jesus sent the comforter. The Holy Spirit to indwell us, to empower us to do what seems impossible. But with God powering us, nothing is impossible, including forgiveness. Just like God called Jesus to be a mediator, he calls us to mediate as well. He calls us to intervene and be a bridge. And through us, God restores and reconciles broken relationships. But the author of Hebrews does not mince words, church. Forgiveness always comes at a cost. And the cost. It's our very lives. The cost is that we have to die to our own desires so that the spirit can empower us to be like Christ, to be the children of God. We were created to be. So the challenge for us this morning is to embrace this role of mediator the same way Jesus does. Right. Because he mediates for us, not for our own sakes, but he mediates for us so that he can mediate through us. He forgives us so that he can forgive through us. This is the work of the gospel. This is the work of Jesus. This is the work of the child of God, which includes you and me. So let us embrace the work of the cross so that we can experience and enter into the resurrection. Let us embrace the work of death so that new life can spring forth in every area of our lives and in our communities. We can do this, church. 
It may seem hard, but I know we can do it because of the God we serve. This is the good news for the Christian, for the Christian. So as God embraces you and as we embrace God, the embrace of God and the embrace of Jesus is also to embrace the work of Jesus. It's also to embrace the burden of being a Christian. But this burden for us is freeing because as we embrace the work of Jesus, we are set free and we get to experience the meaning of what it actually means to be truly Alive, not by the world's definition, but by the definition of the one who created the world, the one who created us. And if we do as he says and as he calls us, our lives will be full of purpose, meaning, value, joy and peace, which is why we're called to sow that peace into a broken and corrupt world. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for the glory of your son, Jesus, who is the mediator between us and you, Lord. God, this morning, we're thankful that you do not give up on us. You relentlessly pursue us in every way. And give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to respond to the calling we have on our lives to follow you. And this morning, God, as we grapple with what it means to embrace everything that you have for us, as we grapple with what it means to be an inheritor of this internal inheritance, God, I pray that you also convict us and encourage us to take up the mantle of our Savior, do the work of our Savior, that this world so desperately needs. This world needs you. This world needs your church, which means this world needs everyone in this room and on this Zoom call, God. And Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that you encourage, convict, and inspire us to be the children that you have called us to be here in this place, in this state, in our communities, and in our families. God, you're good. God, you're glorious. We thank you for everything that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.